0: You're listening to the Co Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas.
1: That's right. You're tuned in to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com. And joining us, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's Ben Folks. Ben, how are you doing this week?
0: I'm doing fantastic.
1: You know, I guess we better start off with a mea culpa, don't you think? Should we? Well, last week we did say, or maybe it was two weeks ago on the podcast, we said that we would have... The, the uh, announcement of the winners of the second annual White Elephant Essay Contest. Oh, that. To uh, announce on this week's podcast. But people can probably tell from your reaction that we don't actually
0: have that quite done yet. You know, it's like every time you bring it up, whether on the podcast or just like when we're talking to each other. I immediately think, oh, right. Yeah. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to, I'm going to start sorting through some of these. And then as soon as we're not talking about it anymore, I, I completely forget.
1: Yeah. I think I told you in an email, um, last week, whenever the last time we discussed this and then immediately forgot it was, uh, that I feel that old, like, dread of having to grade papers from when we used to teach English when we were in graduate school. And it's this weird feeling. It's like, you know, it's not going to be that hard. No. And like, you will actually probably enjoy it cuz i know that we have some good essays in there that i eyeballed when they first came in but then it's just like this dread of starting
0: that's right i don't right. know yeah uh, maybe
1: the same feeling that stops me from going out and running a mile
0: that's uh, not true i've seen you run a mile all the time that's my my cardio is sick that's, that's true right. That's what they say about Chad Dunnis right here on the north side. Is that Chad Dunnis running the mile against? Cardio sick. They <laughs> say it just like he's that.
1: He's great at the mile run. <laughs> Never it's runs a, over a mile. Not, like it's 1915. Like I'm he's out a there.
0: fifth grader training for the Presidential Fitness Challenge.
1: <laughs> uh, Claire Hammond also sent us another beer coupon this week. Um, so I assume that means that we will be... Drinking again at Man, some point it's, soon. Is Claire
0: Hammond trying to get us drunk so she can take advantage of us? Because it is working.
1: <laughs>
0: it is working. It's we are easy to
1: take advantage of. All it takes is like free alcohol yeah. or uh, foreign gelatin candies, it and we're all the it, way there. It
0: helps that we we show up halfway buzzed, so we're 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 willing to meet you halfway. Well, I don't think anyone could expect us to do this stone cold sober, right? No, God, no.
1: Uh, let's see, what are we doing here? Three rounds, as usual, this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, no big deal. Benson Henderson chokes fools out. That's just what he does. And in round number two, Diego Sanchez isn't crazy. You're the ones who are crazy, and you're all plotting against him, and you're trying to steal his map to his secret treasure. And in round number three, Bagautinov Nailed it. Bagautinov.
0: You actually did nail it, I think.
1: And Demetrius Johnson, Rory McDonald, and Tyron Woodley, too. All that, plus are you fucking kidding me? Just saying stuff. Are we going to do tips for a well-rounded fight fan? Hell yeah, and we are. And tips for a well-rounded fight fan, but right now, like we always do about this time... Let's do a little bit of listener mail.
0: Listener mail.
1: The first piece of listener mail comes to us from Tim Osland. He writes, fish hooks and eye pokes and robberies. Oh my. What a terrible day for MMA officiating. John Tuck gets a horrendous stand up from a ref. Brian Caraway fish hooks an opponent and then in parentheses, seemingly deliberately from the Vine video I saw, and the ref either misses it or just decides to ignore it. Piotr Hallman uh, pokes Eve Edwards in the eye a couple of times, and Eve retaliates with an eye poke of his own, yet the ref does nothing.
0: Absolutely nothing.
1: RDS gets an arguably early stoppage. That's uh, actually Rafael Dos Anjos I think we're referring to there, not uh, RDA, Rafael Dos Santos. Uh, who I'm, sh- I'm sh- positive that there's an MMA fighter somewhere named Rafael Dos Santos. And a soccer player. Not this guy. Uh, gets an arguably early stoppage over Jason High. Finally, Diego Sanchez gets some hometown cooking in what has to be the most mind-boggly jaw-dropping robbery I've ever seen. I think I understand now why the UFC hasn't been to New Mexico before. Your thoughts? Why is MMA officiating still so
0: horrible? You know, it's unclear how much we can lay at the doorstep of New Mexico here. I would blame them for the elevation. That seemed to definitely have an effect on some of the undercard fighters, didn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I saw someone on Twitter be like, well, this is, you know, we saw the same thing when the UFC went to Denver, and uh, this is probably why they haven't been back to the mile high city and you'd have to think that the same thing applies to Albuquerque uh, out there in the high desert.
0: Yeah. I think in Denver the thing was they didn't have like heavyweights, had like several heavyweight fights on the card which are already, you know, mm-hmm. they go past the first round prone to to slow way down and then the the altitude got to them. This one it just seemed to Kind of affect a lot of people across the board, but they're also, as we're, we point out here, a lot of weird officiating stuff. Just people cheating their fucking asses off. Like I hesitate to to say it, but it feels like more fighters are embracing the tenets of Dundasso. as as they should.
1: Man, you know what I mean? Like it's we can only be the most dominant style in mixed martial arts today before more professionals start to take note of what's going on.
0: Well, also as was pointed out here. All this stuff that you can point out, like, not a single point was taken from any fighter. Yeah. Nobody was disqualified. The, it was just, like, you know, a couple warnings. And even the Piotr Holman one was a good example. He pokes him once in the eye in the first round and then again in the second round and really getting up in there yeah. for some of those pokes, too. <laughs> like, not, like, the kind of thing where the fingertips graze the eyeball, like, really getting in there. And it was just, like... Oh, come on, seriously, be be careful. Be careful with your fingers. Yes. Uh you know what is
1: strange to me is how these uh these weird knights seem to take on this sort of like almost a personality. Uh, A lot of the time when you see like usually really early on in the prelims, some sort of like, uh, you know, unorthodox stuff starts to happen and it just seems to sort of set the tone for the evening and then it it carries over for the entire night. I don't know if that is just a matter of our own perception or if it really is uh, the MMA gods
0: up there swaying events. Well, I think this one might be... uh a matter of our own perception because it's not uncommon to see an eye poke here or there or some groin kicks. You know, it just takes one or two extra ones all clumped together to make it start to seem like it's a thing that's happening. Right. Especially though, Brian Caraway fucking fish hooking Eric Perez. I mean like, what? you never even see people fish hooking. You never see that as a thing. Like it's been illegal for so long. It was like, uh, they made a rule against that right around the same time they made a rule that said you couldn't pick somebody up and throw them out of the cage. Like it's not one that even comes up. And yet you look at that video and it is pretty hard not to think that Brian Caraway knew what he was doing there.
1: Yeah, it is kind of a damning video. And yet I wanted to talk to you about this. when we answered this question just about the nature of, of our, uh, you know, how the, the sport treats Brian Caraway. Like, is this a situation do you think where if this was a guy that we liked, we would be more, uh, uh, I guess the sport at large would be more likely to be like, ah, oh, you know what? Probably just a mistake. Probably his, he didn't really because it, you know, it doesn't go on for very, too very long. He turns uh, his
0: head with it. He well, yeah, if it was a turn-
1: if it was a face mask, he'd probably get the fifteen yard variety. <laughs> but like,
0: <laughs> they're all fifteen yards now. Yeah, happens.
1: they did change that, which is a uh, you know maybe MMA ought to take a uh, a cue from professional football and and take the idea that the referee is supposed to somehow ordain intent. Before he decides whether or not to uh, assess a, a penalty
0: on a foul, ref totally missed that one. And yeah. I mean, I did too when watching it live. It was until later I saw the divine video and like I think I saw a gif two of it. Where and you know you can like I was trying to think of how maybe that could you could start out on accident. You're trying to, to reach and, and cup the dude's chin to, to pull his head up and pull and, and pull his head back where you want it. And maybe you think you have his chin, but man, you got two fingers in there. Like you gotta know. That The feeling on your two fingers of the inside of a person's mouth feels different than if you were cupping their chin and trying to, trying to pull their head that way.
1: I feel like this podcast just took on a really intimate feel that I was not... You know what the inside for,
0: of a man's mouth feels. like. That's my point. For, That's per, what I'm for saying that today.
1: Here. Well, obviously, feels Brian, like nothing else in the world. Brian T- Caraway obviously takes a lot of shit, right? He does. Uh, uh, Sport wide, industry wide, simply by virtue, I think, of being Misha Tate's like kind of weaselly boyfriend. Right? Well,
0: <laughs> and also being like the dude who was an asshole about uh, pot use. Uh, which will get some MMA fans fired the fuck up.
1: That will. And I was like, you know, prior to this fish hooking incident, it was, I, I was kind of torn about whether or not he deserved this, this baggage that he's been forced to carry around, Uh, you know, uh, for aside from the pot smoking thing, like a thing that, that seems to be possibly rooted in jealousy, <laughs> yeah, yes. I guess a little bit. Uh, But then he goes out and fish hooks this guy and, 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 I don't know, man. I don't know if we would write that off if it was uh, the world's most popular guy did that. But it just seemed like, uh, I guess you got to you got to blame Brian Caraway for it, even though even if he didn't go out there and intend to fish hook the guy.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, I feel like it's it's one of those things where if you say like, yeah, somebody's super popular or somebody who's regarded as a real nice guy, like Eve Edwards, who everybody loves, everybody loves Eve Edwards, just beloved figure in the sport. Uh, if he had fish hooked somebody, we'd be like. Well, that's kind of not cool, and like we would make a little mental drop, maybe no longer super nice guy, merely quite a nice fellow. Uh, Brian Caraway already kind of, as you say, weasel, Misha takes weaselly boyfriend, and then he gonna go full heel with a, with a fishhook. Can you imagine if John Jones had no, fishhook no, somebody? I don't, I don't even want to. He'd have to leave town that night. Have to change his name. He'd be smuggling him across the border with a hair dye and a trunk of a car. <laughs> like people will just freak out if that happens. So you're right; there is like a different kind of application for that. And like as was pointed out, Eve Edwards did go on and get his own eye poke on right. after the second one. But that's one of those things where like we joke about Dundasso and about how it has an outcome, of, uh, an effect on the outcome of a fight. But you poke me in the eye once, I'm diminished. Yes. You do it twice, like once in the first round, once in the second round. You have an advantage over me now, and the ref does nothing other than to tell the guy to seriously be careful. Yeah, second eye poke—you'd think you gotta take a you point, got to, no right? matter what. But that's the thing, and sometimes they will. Sometimes we just have no idea what's going to happen when a foul takes place.
1: And uh, yeah, I guess just to wrap up the Brian Caraway thing, I would be uh, almost inclined to say like circumstances beyond his control contrived to like give him this terrible reputation. But then you see the fish hook thing, and it's it's sort of like a well where there's smoke there's got to be fire you know or right. like this guy can't continually wind up on the wrong end of these weird little controversies yeah. without some kind of It's just kind of like the the uh uh in the book Fat City, the boxing book, where there's yes, that I one that scene book. with the boxers where the guys are like, I don't know, man, trouble just follows us and then like proceeds to tell this story about waiting <laughs> outside a, a bar fight. to fight a guy. Yeah. I don't know. It's just
0: Well, he's also alleged to have elbowed Kat Zangano in the head at like the rules meeting or something, right? Oh God. Yeah.
1: All right, second question this week. Comes from Mark Featherstone. He writes, just when we thought it was safe to stop the TRT, TUE exemption discussion, Vitor blows it all up again by finally admitting that the mystery result from his previous surprise drug test did show high levels of testosterone. Not even sure what to say about this. But what, if anything, does it mean for Vitor, the UFC and the Nevada State Athletic Commission? Uh, so Vitor Belfort is going to go to Nevada and sit in Well, not sit in appear at this uh, licensing hearing i believe next tuesday june 17th conveniently one day after we'll record the podcast next week Bastards. Uh, they did
0: that on purpose
1: conventional wisdom i think now that he has been uh, i guess kind of forced to reveal the results of his drug test since we found out it was probably going to become public anyway at this at this hearing uh conventional wisdom would dictate he's going to get suspended he's not going to be able to appear at ufc 175 but i feel like we're in a really weird situation uh not only with this particular drug test but with the nevada state State Athletic Commission in general, because it's kind of in flux right now. Right. right. Keith Kaiser resigned back in January in late April. Uh, they they hired this new guy, Robert Bennett, uh, who is a former FBI agent and a Marine Corps captain or sergeant
0: or something. Uh, Who I assume as soon as like there's a, a heated discussion with Dana White will shout out, "I was an FBI agent." Either that or you can't
1: you can't handle the truth.
0: Yeah, well that too. Uh,
1: so you know it's a situation where we don't really know. It seems like the Nevada State Athletic Commission is in flux. We don't really know where its head is at. I guess for for various uh, different reasons. And then you got this this issue where I think as we talked about before, it seems hard to believe that the UFC would pluck Vitor belfort out of thin air and insert him into this fight against chael sonnen when Vanderlei silva was removed uh unless it believed that he was gonna be able to emerge from this licensing uh, uh situation unscathed and ready to fight either that, gamble. either that or they're just fucking winging it yeah which i don't know which one is more terrifying yeah,
0: we were talking about that before and you were asking me which one is worse if they know the outcome in advance uh, and therefore, that's why they feel comfortable putting Vitor up for that. Or if they don't know and are just taking a huge fucking risk, something that could completely derail uh, one of the big fights on the card. I don't know. I mean, it, it does seem, maybe it's just the conspiracy theorist to me. It does seem like it's hard for me to imagine the USC taking that big a risk. Uh, and putting it all up to, to chance basically, especially because it seems like rationally, doesn't it? Like that they, there's no way they should give Vitor Belfort a license after all that. It's the second drug test he's failed in the state of Nevada. Uh, and this one came, you know, just a few months ago. Like how do you justify giving him a license after that? It's seriously going to be a pretty huge what's really going on moment if they if they do
1: grant him a license. Uh, I was just, you know, I wrote something about it on Bleacher Report today and I was doing some research as I was writing it. And I had totally forgotten that even when he was supposed to fight at UFC 173 against uh, Chris Weidman, one of the Nevada State Athletic Commission uh, consulting physicians came out even before he had taken this February 7th drug test, which he later failed and said, you know, yeah, if the guy has a steroid test, there's no way they're going to grant him a therapeutic use exemption. So it's like, you know, there's been suspicion around this guy for so long and and guys who consult on medical issues for the Nevada State Athletic Commission kind of implying like, yeah, we're, we're probably not going to let him do that. And then he comes in and fails a test anyway. I don't see how you let the guy skate either with time served or with no suspension yeah. whatsoever. It just well, seemed
0: like it would be bizarre. Also, you mentioned how uh, you know, Vitor made the test results public just last week, right? And he only did it for for, for a long time. The test results were not relevant, according not relevant. to his lawyer. relevant. Not, not relevant. Uh, weren't going to release them to anybody. Then I think it was on Yahoo where we had uh, the Nevada State Athletic Commission officials saying, like, yeah, we're going to – those test results will become public at that meeting. Uh, like, it is going to be relevant. After that, like days after that maybe, uh, then Vitor Belfort releases it to kind of, I guess, get out in front of it, and that way you could say, hey, look, I'm not hiding anything. I'm the one who told you what the test results were. Yeah, only after you knew that we were going to find out one way or another. Uh, also puts it
1: out on a Friday afternoon the day before there's a UFC event the next day. So if you're running PR 101 and you got some bad news that you want to put out and then immediately have buried by people's live blogs and recaps and full fight video highlights, (laughs) uh, Friday afternoon, pretty good time to do it since you know exactly what's
0: going down the next day. That's what a political operative would do there. Uh, But also I think that we have to ask – Like the question here that Mark Featherstone asks is what does it mean for Vitor, the Vatis Athletic Commission, and the UFC? Because as you'll recall, Chad, Dana White assured us multiple times that they were testing the shit out of Vitor Belfort. He was a goddamn pincushion because of how many times he'd been tested, uh... And yet the first time he's tested in a surprise test by the vast athletic commission, they catch him doing exactly what we all thought that he was doing or what we were afraid that uh, TRT users were doing, which is jacking their levels way up uh, when you know they don't have a fight coming up when they're just in training and that kind of stuff. This is exactly what we said was the problem with this. And the first time he's tested by somebody who's actually going to tell us what the test results were, he gets caught doing it. So it's like either the UFC's tests were just way worse Or they were testing the shit out of him and catching him and not saying anything. Or they weren't really testing the shit out of him. Like, it just seems like there's no way it's such a coincidence that they're testing him all the time and he keeps coming up clean. But the first time Nevada tests him, he fails.
1: Yeah. And you know what? Dana White's quotes on that subject were very strange. His most recent quotes where he made it. It it made it seem like not only he didn't really understand the timeline of events. Uh, because it seemed like he thought maybe Vitor went to Nevada after TRT was illegal or something. You saw these quotes, right? Yeah. Where they're like, you can't be on TRT in Nevada, and uh, then he he like alleged that like it, it didn't matter if Vitor's levels were high because uh, uh he didn't have a fight. He wasn't fighting, even though he was, like, already scheduled to fight for the goddamn UFC middleweight title, right. for Christ's sake. Uh, and then, like, also sort of alleged that maybe uh, high testosterone levels can be challenged and that doctors disagree about what yes. they mean.
0: Just trying to attack the idea that there could be such a thing as expertise on the subject.
1: You know what I think it means at the end of the day for Vitor Belfort? is probably good. It probably means, like, no matter what happens at this Nevada State Athletic Commission hearing, it seems like the UFC is going to give him more fights yeah it does seem
0: like Dana White is definitely laying the ground there, and you know you got to think Dana White knew what the results of the tests were, so uh was already kind of trying to do some advanced road work there to make sure that uh, it's it's a smoother runway for VTOR heading into that that commission hearing, but this is going to be the question is is the commission just going to be there to to rubber stamp this and give us the appearance of like some kind of outside regulator? Uh, Or is the commission actually going to tell the fight promoter no, which, if they're not willing to do that in situations like this, why even have a commission?
1: Yeah, it's going to be weird. Uh, Let's move on, though, since I'm sure we're going to end up talking about that again later. Uh, Sam Keeley writes, is Invictus signing a deal with the UFC to be shown on Fight Pass good for them and their fans or just another way for Zufa to shape the sport in their image? I'm going to say both. Uh, I think it's relatively good news for Invicta. I think that like uh they're going to get a certain amount of good exposure uh, out of it, and it you know it might be good for the Invicta fighters to maybe have a pipeline straight into the UFC even more than uh than they previously did uh Maybe the downside for Invicta is that it seemed like earlier they were really trying to score a TV deal uh, and I assume if they went ahead and inked this deal to be on fight pass, it meant that uh they didn't get an offer for a TV deal that they liked. Uh, now we, I saw on Twitter today that, that matchmaker Julie Kedzie is moving from Albuquerque to Kansas City to, to work with Invicta full time. Yeah. So, uh, I assume that these two things are not completely unrelated. So, uh, maybe there's a, you know, a, a fairly large financial, uh, uh, implication for Invicta here signing this fight pass deal.
0: Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that, I'm curious when I heard this news about how it would affect your personal stance on Fight Pass. Because we know from the past that you had said you would not buy Invicta because you felt to do so would be sexist somehow. I don't, uh, don't I know for- why we're bringing I, this I up. I forget your hazy justification for that. Uh, no, I didn't and want to watch would, it because I didn't want to watch it streaming on the internet. Right? And because you wouldn't buy Fight Pass. So I'm curious, does adding something like this... To the the Fight Pass roster, assuming that you know right now Invicta doesn't have a ton of events going on, but assuming they get fairly regularly events, say like three or four a year uh, on Fight Pass, does it make you more likely to think that Fight Pass is worth the money?
1: Yes, I believe it makes it overall a more interesting product, and not only with the addition of of Invicta, but the idea. Which, frankly, is fucking brilliant when you think about it, that the UFC could fairly easily move to make Fight Pass like a destination to watch all different kinds of MMA, right? Because... There's so much MMA going on right now on Access TV on Friday nights with uh, RFA, which we know uh, is is owned by uh, Ed from Black House, right? That he already has a relationship with the UFC. A lot of his fighters fight there.
0: And he's pretty much stated that he wants RFA to just be like a feeder league.
1: Right. So, I mean, it doesn't seem that difficult for the UFC really uh, without terribly increasing its own costs, I bet, to like uh, branch out and start – showing a lot of different independent MMA promotions on fight pass, which I think would make it a a more attractive feature for a lot of people. But, uh, also, uh, really only solidifies the, the control that it already has over the entire industry.
0: Well, there's um, when we get into the, is this, this something for Zufa to, sh- to further shape the sport in their own image, right. part of the question.
1: So, I would say both good and and uh, concerning, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it it does make Fight Pass a more interesting commodity, and, and if it's going to have a lot more different types of events on it, I think.
0: Yeah, it does, and it, especially... It gives you something where uh there was already a, a hunger for this from, like, the existing fan base, the, the hardcore fan base that wanted to watch Invicta events and was paying to watch them online. Uh And if you can, like, you, presumably the people who felt like Invicta was worth, like, a 10 or $15 or whatever they charged on Ustream, uh, Invicta pay-per-view, presumably those people are already in the, the target market for fight pass and have either signed up or definitely made a choice about signing up. You know, they're not way out there in the, the casual sports fan realm, uh, for MMA. So you're just adding something that, you know, the, the people you're after already kind of like and are willing to pay for. So you're right. It does just add value without like upping the price, uh, in that sense. I, I also though, uh, it feels like this is the first thing where you're not just giving us leftovers. Like you're actually giving us something right. yeah. that good and new and that could have been its own standalone thing. It's not just the undercard or some event that you, you know, you can't get on TV and so fuck it. We'll throw it up on the internet.
1: All right, let's do one more quickly. Cause it's something that I think we both want to talk about this uh, letter from or uh, email from Liam Nelligan. He writes, The promo for the Eric Prindle-James Thompson fight in Bellator was one of the most incredible MMA-related things I've ever seen on TV. I am sure you will spend an entire round talking about it, but just in (laughs) case you don't, what did you think of what Bellator did with the Eric Prindle-James Thompson fight? And can... and." You can't use the analogy, hit a home run. Well, I'm uh, out. Yeah. Fuck it. Uh, I think a lot of people saw this, but the sort of like epic and insane promo for the heavyweight Eric Prindle versus James Thompson fight in Bellator, uh, where they referred to it as my favorite, uh, quote unquote, high concept fight at one point. <laughs> I uh, had not seen
0: this until you sent it to me, and it
1: did kind of blow my goddamn mind. They, they compared it to bacon in a milkshake, I believe. Yes. Uh, used uh, copious use of the expression nut shot.
0: Yeah, uh, Godzilla versus versus king kong i believe was referenced at one point yeah
1: and you know what the first time i saw it which was uh on friday or thursday afternoon on the internet and then was actually kind of surprised that they played it on the bellator broadcast before this fight uh i was taken aback by it my first my first response to it was that it was stupid uh but then i started to think about it and i started to to decide maybe that like uh it it was you know kind of lowbrow and whatever i feel like it was it was it should be commended for its originality and the fact that it seemed like kind of a self-aware yes. and purposefully humorous promo done about a fight that like, I think a lot of people would look at and be like, oh, kind of a freak show fight, just two real big heavyweights. So we're going to go out there and, and throw bungalows at each other's uh, chins. Yeah. And like I think that that is kind of an interesting thing, you know, like and it, it makes you wonder like, hey man, what if would it be a positive thing for Bellator to just sort of embrace that as part of its role in this MMA landscape is that it's going to do kind of crazy uh, whatever Bjorn Rebney said about Cirque du Soleil style fights and like whether or not it just sort of embracing that would be a good thing for the company uh, and the, you know you compare this promo to like the terrible one that's out right now for UFC 174 with the uh, Linkin Park theme song or whatever and it's like I don't know man I think you got to kind of come down on the side of the Eric Prindle James
0: Thompson promo as being the better one you're right that it is self-aware it seems and like tongue-in-cheek uh, it, it seems like to realize that hey, you don't have to always sell MMA fights the same way. You can inject a little humor. Uh, we can admit that you know maybe this these aren't the two greatest heavyweights in the world going at it. Especially if you have got Bellator's heavyweight division, should you better have a sense of humor. You know that you're not going to be able to sell that as the best heavyweights in the world. Uh, I don't know. I mean as we pointed out when we were talking about it earlier though the the promo was awesome the fight not so much yeah uh, and then james
1: thompson jumps on the mic and it's like a scene from snatch i couldn't understand <laughs> a word he was saying but he was just
0: going off but i do appreciate that like it's not just the the same thing that the ufc is doing over and over and over again which is just like you know greatest fighters in the world you you got to see this shit these guys here's their rankings pound for pound best everybody you know and then after this event there'll be another another pound for pound best and just hyping the shit out of it every single time and then going to turn around and do the exact same thing next weekend like it is a little something different and and i appreciate that uh it also seems a a little bit maybe in keeping with the spike tv bro identity kind of thing for sure for sure uh but i'm not sure that that's necessarily such a bad thing i mean it it Here we are talking about it, so it can't be too awful.
1: Yeah, How else are you
0: going to get us to talk about James Thompson and Eric Prindle?
1: (laughs) Good point, good point. Well, that's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you want to air to the Co-Main Event podcast, you know how to get a hold of us. Go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says Email the Podcast. While you're there, you can also sign up for the Breakfast of Champions
0: newsletter. And if you have not signed up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter, what the hell is wrong with you? Yeah. It's It's awesome. You are missing out.
1: That comes out every Friday morning. Uh, to give you a quick glance at the MMA news that we miss between Mondays. Uh, As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, former UFC lightweight champion Benson Henderson stopped Rustam Habeloff, a.k.a. Hobby Love, a.k.a. Rusty Cables, if you nasty, uh, in the fourth round of their main event fight in Albuquerque on Saturday night. His first stoppage uh, in his UFC career, at least. And then Benson Henderson ran to the side of the cage and uh, yelled some talk to me shit at the uh, people sitting on press row and uh then went to the press conference and uh continued his arguably real arguably imagined uh feud with the MMA media where he charged them us i guess with uh Mainly you. uh not knowing how hard it is to finish people in the UFC because they've never competed in anything at a high level. Um, let's talk, I guess first about the performance and then we can talk a little bit about the fallout and maybe how Ben Henderson still while on the right track is in maybe kind of a weird spot in the lightweight division. Uh, this, this is what we said he needed to do right last week is to go out and, and craft a stoppage look impressive. And I, I think he did that, especially there, you know, at the end, which came swiftly for Rustam Habel with the, uh, right uppercut left cross combo uh immediate back take rear naked choke
0: yeah and it was that kind of thing where it's the best possible finish you can get kind of right because it shows that you have the striking skills to hurt a guy and drop him but then the submission skills to pounce on him so it's like you kind of got a tko and a submission in one uh which is does he get two wins sure let's give him two wins let's go in there in wikipedia right now and give him an extra win nobody will notice uh you know, exactly the kind of thing that he did need, I think, and especially uh, against a tough opponent and in a fight where it was fairly close and uh Hobby Love looked good, you know, early in that fight. Yes. And so it, it's in a way better than just going out there and, and and blowing the dude away because it gives you an opportunity to appreciate, hey, man, Hobby Love is a good fighter, tough dude. Uh, and then Henderson found a way to put him away anyway.
1: Yeah, if anything, I think uh it worked out for both guys. Although, you know, a, a loss is always a loss. And they, a lot of people say there's no such thing as a moral victory. But Rustam Habelov, I thought, uh proved that he belonged with guys who were in the top 10 and in the upper echelon of the lightweight division. Uh Two out of three judges had him ahead. After three rounds, twenty nine, twenty eight, I think, um, and definitely, like you said, looked good with uh, heavy counter punches, and then his his uh, vaunted grappling game. Uh, although Ben Henderson, I think you could argue, gave as good as he got. Uh, he always, you know, stood right up when Habalov was able to take him down. And uh, I thought for Ben Henderson, even though for the first three rounds it seemed like this was playing out like maybe a typical Benson Henderson fight, like it was going to result in another really close decision. Uh, it seemed like he was showing some added urgency. I think uh you know he seemed to be sitting down on his punches a little bit more trying to do more damage and and seemed to give the impression that he was out there looking for a stoppage which he eventually did get uh and and so yeah worked out good for him uh and then uh uh he kind of goes to the to the press conference and uh blasts the media uh my initial reaction to this was that Um, even though Ben Henderson has gotten a fair amount of criticism, uh, for putting together eight decisions in a row, which, um, I think if, if, if you frame the argument only in that way, I think is the wrong way to, to talk about the criticism of Ben Henderson. But like my initial reaction to this was like, this is just the way this guy motivates himself. Do you think that's right or wrong?
0: I think so. And I think you could tell that it's obviously something that he was thinking a lot about, right? Well, he's done it before too. Yeah. He did it after he beat Nate Diaz. Um, also though, the thing about doing that is in the fights where you, you don't do it and you win like a split decision, it kind of sends a message that you didn't know if you're going to win that one, right? Like it does create this contrast, but you know, he went over there and yelled at the media through the cage, uh, right away. You know, right. like pretty much immediately after finishing that fight when Jim right Brown over there. style, yeah, like
1: after Hoist Gracie taps out Dan Severn, where Jim <laughs> Brown is like, "Talk to me <laughs> he's just like couldn't believe that anyone thought Dan Severn might beat hoist Gracie,
0: well, you know it's the like that kind of thing tells you that it was something that he has spent a good amount of time thinking about and stewing on, and yeah, you know you find the motivation that you need wherever you can, so i don 't really blame him too much for that, and in a way. This, to me, seems like the most interesting thing we know about ben- Benson Henderson's personality. Uh, he, Yeah. Other than that, yeah. he just seems like, you know, he's come off as kind of weird. Uh, he does the toothpick thing. People are just kind of like, what's up with this guy? You know, he has that weird non-reaction after he gets submitted by Anthony Pettis and loses his title. Like, it just seems like a lot of ways people don't know how to take him. He doesn't respond to things the way you expect uh, most fighters to respond uh, and then when he goes and does this, it's like the most fire we see out of him, really. You know, like the, that, the way he was standing there yelling at the press. You don't ever really see that out of him in pre-fight interviews or anything else. Uh, this it gives you something like to latch onto something where you feel like you know a little something more about the guy.
1: Yeah, and you know, coming I, since I used to work for Versus.TV TV and watched a lot of WEC, I always liked watching Ben Henderson fight. And back in those days, he started his career with ten stoppage victories, I think, in his first thirteen fights, uh, and and uh, uh, that seemed like a, a Benson Henderson that I could get behind. And and he seems like a, a you know a pretty nice guy. He, I did think you're right that he comes off a little bit. Uh, uh, w- weird sometimes and standoffish in the media, but I think that that's understandable for a dude who, uh, admits that he doesn't like to do that kind of stuff. But at the same time, If you admit that you don't like to do press, then you're sort of limiting yourself almost in terms of your marketability. And like, you know, if fans, if both fans and the UFC itself didn't exactly go into mourning uh, when a guy who's self-proclaimed doesn't like to to do media and is kind of up to that point had had won all of his fights via decision when he loses his title to pretty Tony, a dude who has a really flashy striking game and, you know, has more suits than most people have underwear. Like well-groomed, just uh, well-groomed. Let's say it. uh, I think you could understand the, the why nobody necessarily cried their eyes out at that title change. Now the, the, the idea that we criticize Ben Henderson for only winning by decisions, I think does not grasp the entire situation. No. Because that seems to be the thing that Ben Henderson thinks we're criticizing him for. But, you know, if you, if you go, and hey, man, you win eight straight decisions, like, you're, somebody's gonna comment on that, frankly. That's, that's just notable in and of itself. But like, I personally don't have a problem with somebody who only wins by decision. Like I always really liked George St. Pierre. He goes out there and, and blows the doors off the best welterweights in the world, almost exclusively by decision.
0: But that's the thing is that by the time you stand there waiting for them to announce the winner after a George St. Pierre fight, uh, you know, with the, the Johnny Hendricks fight being kind of the lone example other times there's really never any doubt whose right. name they're going to call. And
1: that, the problem with Ben Henderson is not that he was exclusively winning by decision. The problem and the real argument that could be made here is that Ben Henderson was winning decisions that a lot of people thought that he lost. That's where the criticism right. can come in. Like
0: after he, he defended his title against Gilbert Melendez uh, – to to remain the champion i remember that's the one where people started to look back you know that was a split decision the one over nate diaz was kind of the only really clear one that he had he had a split decision over frankie edgar in their rematch and the first fight where he took the belt from frankie edgar was a unanimous decision but was also very close and a lot of you know a lot of people thought that that one should have gone the other way and so that's when i think people started to kind of look at him and say wait a minute you got a lightweight champion who with a little slightly different judges take uh, could be, you know, one in three in right. his last four. And then you
1: got the Josh Thompson one. I don't know if you've right. talked about that, but that's the, and that's the other thing about this, about Benson Henderson kind of going after the media. Like, uh, the media is not the entity responsible for like creating this stigma that exists around guys that only win by decision. Uh, that stigma you could argue is created by benson henderson's employers right. over at the ufc who uh have always financially incentivized guys who win by knockout guys who win by submission they're not afraid to go out and tell guys not to leave it in the hands of the judges
0: Dana and, white was just doing this when hyping hennon burrow right just talking about what a finisher he is
1: right and in the wake of this split decision over josh thompson in january dana white came out and said that's not going to get it done for ben henderson he called it a quote-unquote typical benson henderson fight and said when the title is on the line or number one contendership is on the line we know how benson henderson fights so i don't know man like while but it's I easier underst- to take a
0: shot at us than to take a shot at your oh boss.
1: absolutely i was just going to say while while i understand uh the frustration on the part of benson henderson and why he might want to yell through the cage of the media it does kind of seem like maybe he's yelling at the wrong people
0: uh, No, i mean he can yell at us and you know we can understand it as yelling at a proxy uh, of, of dana white in that situation if, if you want to but i also feel like you know I was wondering, we were talking about this with with Danny Downs this weekend in our in our column, because I was wondering, is this something where all fighters are like, yes, yell at those bastards to talk about us because they don't understand how hard it is to finish? And this is something you brought up before, his comment that, well, the media has never, these guys have never competed at a high level in anything, so they don't know how hard it is to finish people, which I feel like. I agree and disagree with. Like, on one hand, I think we do sometimes assume that, like, it's a, it's a matter of choice whether you're going out there to finish people and you look at the people that he has not finished and they're generally guys that don't get finished. You know, right, it's not yeah. like. He's fighting the best guys in the world. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I don't think it's that. Because of the lack of like competition experience of uh, most MMA media members that we're thinking that it's because we look at other fighters who are finishing people and we look at other champions who are like the dominant dudes in the division right. uh, going out there and smashing people. And like you said, it doesn't even always have to be uh finishing opponents just putting on dominant performances where it's clear who the champion still is at the, at the end of the fight. I mean, I think that that is a difference. We're not comparing you to what we think we could do. We're comparing you to what other fighters do. Right. Uh, And I think that maybe that's something he's missing in there. But again, you know, if that's how he needs to find his motivation and if that's how, like, we're going to get our window into his personality, that's how we need to see some fire out of that guy, then fine, I'll take that.
1: Yeah, it does seem a lot more interesting than than some of the other stuff he says. And frankly, I enjoyed the sort of fire he put in the end of his speech with uh, John Anik where he said – you know, the belt's not being defended. If you want to fight for the belt, come talk to me, come see me, whatever he said.
0: And that is a really, like, we talk about self-awareness with Bellator's promo. That's a self-aware statement of where he is right now in the division, that he's not up next in line here. It's not going to be anytime soon. You know, he's, he he knows he's going probably going to have to fight some more to make that case. So, hey, he's a former champion who everybody regards as a really tough guy. If you go out there and you can beat Benson Henderson, that should put you next in line for the title. Uh... Come see me. You know, kind of the, the, just that James Tony thing, like, hey, you, you, you want to fight for that title, you, you got a problem, come see me. And I think that's a good place for him to, to be, because he is a guy who, man, if you are on a run looking at that UFC title, that's a tough fight for you getting by Benson Henderson, but it'll really prove something.
1: Yeah, and we only let's only do another minute or two of this, but at this point it seems like uh the the best bets as the guys who are gonna come see him are probably uh your Habib Namr, Nurmagomed Nurmis, Nurmis. You got your Nurmis, your Nurmagomedovs. You got and probably maybe Rafael Dos Anjos, who, uh, despite the fact that he just lost to Nurmi a little while ago, uh, got a win on Saturday and, and had been ranked pretty highly before that, and now is probably going to be a guy in your in your top three or four, uh, right there in that division. So while we all sit around and wait for Anthony Pettis to get healthy and then eventually come back and star on a reality show, and then we think uh, if all works out right knock on wood uh maybe defend his title against gilbert melendez by the end of the year uh so certainly some time for everyone to work yeah while we while we wait for that
0: and it makes the division seem uh interesting in a brand new way it does kind of
1: uh let's do tips for the well-rounded fight fan and then we'll move on to round number two ben what's your tip for a well-rounded fight fan this week
0: well, Chad, I don't know if you still have uh, a subscription to Showtime or if you cut it off as soon as Strike Force was off of there. Yeah, I don't have that anymore. Well, you missed a good documentary on Showtime uh, that just aired. I think the premiere was Friday night uh, called 12 O'Clock Boys. Uh, which is about a bunch of dudes in Baltimore who ride dirt bikes and ATVs uh, illegally through the streets of Baltimore in a huge packs like on Sundays. And it is awesome. Uh, it sounds awesome, uh, it frankly. Is, it is. Uh, they call them 12 o'clock boys because they'll just ride like just constantly popping a wheelie. So they're just basically straight up and down like the hands of a clock pointing at 12 o'clock. Uh, and it also makes you realize, man, The Wire got a lot of stuff about Baltimore, including the sound of the accents in Baltimore, absolutely right. Uh, and it's just a really interesting uh, documentary, really well shot and uh, well edited. 12 o'clock, boys, if you have showtime or you have access to one of those illegal things that gets you showtime without having to pay for it, by all means, look that one up.
1: That sounds pretty good. Uh I w- I'm also going to recommend a documentary uh which is available streaming on Netflix and I know that you have seen it because your wife recommended it to me. Uh and it's the documentary Dear Zachary which oh, yeah. uh while kind of uh made by a, probably an amateur film- filmmaker and doesn't necessarily have the like the professional flash of a lot of other documentaries is a hell of a haunting story. Yes it is. And I don't want to tell you too much about it because uh I don't want to spoil it for you, but it's about a, it's made by the, a guy whose friend was murdered. Uh, by his girlfriend, who then later revealed that she was pregnant with that guy's baby. The dead guy's baby has the child. And then the documentary kind of focuses on a custody dispute between the dead guy's parents and uh, the crazy lady who killed him. And it is, uh, it'll stick with you. Harrowing. For a little while. It's harrowing. Ben so folks yeah. calls it harrowing. <laughs> that's a good blurb, man. Uh, so yeah, dear Zachary. Um, Anyway, that's it for round number one. We're going to go ahead and get started with round number two.
0: Yes, 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 that was the worst decision in MMA history. I feel like the
1: last time we did a round about Diego Sanchez, you may have started it the exact same way. You well, think that's, that's because possible?
0: it fucking works, Chad. Diego Sanchez goes out there, kind of gets worn around like a button by Ross Pearson for all three rounds, and then he's standing there at the end of the fight, waiting for the decision to be announced, pumping his fist hopefully, and you're thinking, there's no way he thinks he won that, does he? And what do you fucking know? Two out of the three judges say he did win that. One of the judges says he won every round. Are you kidding me, Chad? What's up with that? Well, the, yeah, this was the crown jewel on all of the weirdness,
1: right? This was the, uh, the thing, the frosting. This took the cake. Man, this may have been the worst decision in MMA history. Yes, I'm going to say it was. It was pretty damn close if it wasn't because it was bad. And here's the weird thing about it, man. You know, we always chalk this up like, oh, there's no way this guy is going to lose in his hometown. Like, this is home cooking. It's a hometown decision. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, though. These judges at this Albuquerque fight... Uh, are just like normal uh MMA boxing judges. I don't even know that Emma, any of them are from New Mexico or from Albuquerque. Uh the guy who scored all three rounds for Diego Sanchez is Jeff Collins, who's like a guy who fairly regularly judges big time MMA fights and should not. So <laughs> makes makes me wonder like where's this come from, man? Are are like Are the guys who are sitting around the cage watching fights just, like, ridiculously impressionable
0: in terms of, like, crowd reaction? (laughs) You know, I think that crowd reaction can play a bigger part than maybe we give it credit for sometimes. Because I've definitely been in those, uh, like, at those live events where uh, I remember it was at one of the IFL ones where I think it was uh, Roy Nelson and and Ben Rothwell, maybe. uh, And it was, like, in the Quad Cities, in, like, Moline, Illinois and you know ben rothwell was huge there and roy nelson comes in there nobody really knew who roy nelson was and it was a close fight but it was one where every time ben rothwell landed a punch people just lost their fucking minds and roy nelson would land one back and nothing you know i could see how that can affect you somewhat but ideally the judges like as kind of a condition of their employment would have a proven track record of being able to disregard all that stuff and just pay attention to what's happening
1: Yeah, and this, this is one that makes you feel real bad for Ross Pearson, uh, since he, you know, fought a really good fight and fought a smart fight and seemed to really, uh, uh, nullify all the stuff that Diego Sanchez was trying to do and, uh, was able to really kind of implement his game plan when, uh, uh, Diego Sanchez was not able to implement his such as it was uh and also you know uh Ross Pearson came into this one straight off the no contest against Melvin Gallard so um he's had weird outcomes in his last two fights and uh uh prior to that had won two in a row so you think if he rightfully got the decision in this one he would have been uh three oh and one in his last four fights and now uh you have to think he's not really going to suffer any
0: uh any consequences because of this except for losing half of a paycheck except
1: for losing half of his paycheck but the uh you know the ufc is probably going to look at this as a win uh most fans are going to remember this as a win for him and and or as a huge screw job uh but uh really does kind of make you feel bad for a guy who does a lot of work and then comes in and probably rightly wins a fight
0: in a way it also makes me feel bad for diego sanchez because he's not in really control of what the judges do, so it it does seem like he has been on the receiving end of an inordinate number of questionable decisions. You know that he had that fight against uh, Martin Campman, uh, where it seemed like he was going to lose a decision, and arguably did the same. There, won it the same way he won this one, which is he has these moments of just furious activity where he's throwing in flurries and they're not really landing very much, but it looks good. You know, if you if you step back and kind of unfocus your eyes, it sure looks like he's beating the hell out of the other guy, even if those punches aren't landing. And he had a, another split decision against Takanori Gomi. You know, uh, he had a split decision against Clay Guida. He has those kind of fights where it seems like it's going to go the other way. And then he always seems to end up on the, the victorious end of those. But people are going to blame him for this and say, you know, Diego Sanchez was the, you know, the beneficiary of the greatest robbery in the history of MMA, which is not really his fault. I mean, I can understand why he's going to think he won, although he did admit that a 30-27 for him was kind of ridiculous. Uh, But, see, that's the thing that tells you how absurd it was, because a 30-27 for Ross Pearson, not at all ridiculous. You look at the stats, he outstruck him in every round. So a 30-27 there makes complete sense. If you can't say the same in the opposite direction, kind of tells you something.
1: Yeah. And I guess we should point out that aside from Diego Sanchez's win over Paulo Tiago at UFC 121, where he kind of came back from an early deficit and ended up wrestling his way back to a, a victory. Uh, you just mentioned all of his wins dating back to 2009, June 20th <laughs> of 2009 against Clay Guida. Uh, you know, whenever I watch a Diego Sanchez fight, the new, the new Diego Sanchez, I'm filled with this sort of like sinking dread and part of it is that I remember the fighter that Diego Sanchez used to be. Uh, I remember when Diego Sanchez used to be a tenacious wrestler with a really good motor and decent takedowns and good top control and heavy ground and pound and better than adequate submissions. And that's the dude that he was. And that's the dude, frankly, that got him to the UFC. And it feels like over his last, you know, dozen, half dozen fights, whatever it's been in the in the octagon, he has totally morphed into a completely different guy. And I don't know whether or not it's to please the fans or to make more money with bonuses or to continue to get himself booked in these high-profile situations, but every time I'm watching this Diego Sanchez who just goes out there and sprints straight into his opponent's uh, punches in just like the vain effort to land a couple of hooks, I'm always like where's that old Diego Sanchez? The Diego Sanchez that had tons of potential and like used to take people down and whip their asses. That's the dude I want
0: to see. Well, I think one of the things is that the the game done changed uh, since then. He's fighting, the the fighters that he's facing now are better, more well-rounded. He also has gotten a little older and doesn't have quite that same uh, explosive speed and power that he used to have, Uh, you know, a little bit slower, a little bit easier to hit. Um, But you're right that he does make himself even easier to hit, uh, and he has that kind of thing where... He's getting beat up, and it's just kind of like, yeah, 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 come on, more, more, more. And that's not winning you any fights. I mean, I arguably won him this one, I guess, because he didn't do a whole lot else. But, uh, you know, that that is not the way you really want to be, is as the guy who just stands there and gets hit, and in that way somehow opens up the other dude for offense. That's not just a very a style that lends itself to a lot of longevity but at the same time it doesn't seem like that's the message he's taken from it because i remember when i was in albuquerque to do that thing on greg jackson's and i was talking to greg jackson about uh his fight with gilbert Melendez and how you know that was another fight where he did pretty much the same thing and then landed that one big punch that dropped gilbert uh and looked like he might pull off a comeback and didn't and greg was saying yeah you know We kind of can't have too many of those. Those are not the kind of great, you know, fans love it and everything, and you get a bonus check or something afterwards, but those are not great fights to have over and over again as a fighter. And then I asked Diego the next day uh, if he agreed with that sentiment, and what he said was, hell no, man, I want those kind of fights all the time. That lets me know who I am as a warrior. And I thought, well, he's he's not taking the same message away from that that Greg Jackson is.
1: Yeah, um, he, so he wins this decision and then he goes to the post fight press conference and, uh, calls out Nate Diaz for a fight down in Mexico, south of the border, uh, which makes you kind of wonder at the end of the day, Diego Sanchez, crazy like a fox. <laughs> Cause like, if he could get himself into that fight in, in, in Mexico, I don't think he would win, but, uh, Probably a nice little payday for him, right?
0: Who knows? He might win he might win another decision that should go the that's other true. way. Who knows what would happen? Yeah, I mean, I guess, it, I, you know, it's one of those things where everybody hears that, that plan and is like, well, that's probably not going to work. But, you know, once I start to think about it, maybe it's not such a horrible idea. If you could convince Nate Diaz to, to come out and take a fight and stop giving him this funny money.
1: Yeah, and I hear what you're saying about Diego Sanchez's uh, possibly discli- declining skill set and the fact that the, the game has changed and he's fighting different guys. It just always makes me sad, though, when I see a guy totally abandon the skill set that, that at one time made him successful, and now he's become this uh, this completely different and far less successful thing. And And in the case of Diego Sanchez, for what I think are... Uh, sad reasons almost like I realized that he probably made a lot more money, but like, you know, it seems like he's out there trying to put on a good show and, and please the fans and taking a lot of abuse because of it, which is, I don't, I don't care for it. Frankly. Well,
0: I don't know if it's as you seem to think that it's a really conscious decision on his part to go out there and, and get bonus money and that kind of stuff. I mean, I do think a lot of guys have done that. Like Leonard Garcia will tell you that he definitely did do that and that it was a mistake. Uh, but I think with Diego Sanchez, I think he was already kind of that guy to begin with. And he only needed a little bit of encouragement. Um, plus the elimination of some other options in order to go all the way in that direction. Cause let's face it. If he stands there and has a really technical boxing match with Ross Pearson, he doesn't win that.
1: No, that's maybe why you should have tried to put him on his back. Anyway, let's do uh are you fucking kidding me? And then, uh, and we'll move on to round three. Ben, what's your are you fucking kidding me for this week?
0: Well, Chad, I don't know if you saw this, uh, but Uriah Faber, I believe it was on his Instagram, sent out a picture. I saw it. Of the, Al- the team Alpha Male Boys hanging with uh, UFC CEO Lorenzo Fertitta. And did oh, you... that's, that's not what I thought you were going to oh, say. Oh, you thought I was going to talk about the cake. I thought
1: you were going to talk about the dick cake, but uh, I saw the picture with Lorenzo the Fertitta too. Was,
0: the dick cake was also hilarious, uh, but it doesn't get an "Are you fucking kidding me for me because I talked to Joseph Benavides about the dick cake. Uh, and I asked if they were baking those themselves and he said they're having the cakes professionally baked, but then they added the dicks on their own. <laughs> okay. Um,
1: best which, way to do it. Yeah.
0: I guess. I thought, except for the last one. He said the TJ Dillashaw one, he said they had a professional person do the, the cake and the dick and she was all into it. Uh, so, Fine, that, that one's kind of awesome once I know the whole story. I'm talking about their picture with Lorenzo Fertita where Lorenzo Fertita looks like the goddamn incredible Hulk. Did you see that? I saw Did it. See the arms on that guy? He saw it. His workout regimen is working. Kidding me, Lorenzo Fertita. He's back, man! He's back. You know, maybe like let's work in like a like a Chad dundas esque mile run every once in a while. Let's let's maybe we'll skip biceps day, uh, and we'll we'll get in like some yoga or something, man. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding
1: me? Well, Ben, this week, my are you fucking kidding me goes out to the ringside doctor from UFC Fight Night 42, who, first of all, I want to point out, showed up in his capacity as a member of the ringside medical staff wearing a full on chain link all over print button up shirt. Nice uh, because nothing says I am here to protect fighter safety like wearing an MMA themed dress shirt that like not even Joe Rogan would wear probably on a UFC broadcast. And you got to pop a couple of the buttons down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely do. Then after we already had our doubts about this guy poor Eve Edwards as we talked about earlier gets ganked in the eye straight Dundasso style by Piotr Hallman and the ringside doctors main concern it appears to be from the broadcast is that Eve Edwards. Edwards isn't going to take too long recovering. You can actually hear the guy on the broadcast say, you're not going to take too long, are you? When Eve <laughs> Edwards tells him he needs a minute to recover. Now, I know that there are some discrepancies in the rules about how long guys get to recover from eye pokes as opposed to groin strikes. But I mean, come on. Are you fucking kidding me? Professional fighter just got poked super bad in the eye. Give him a couple of minutes to make sure he's okay. Are you fucking kidding me? Are
0: you fucking kidding me?
1: Well, that's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. this weekend on Saturday night, UFC 174 comes to us live from the beautiful city of Vancouver, Canada. Uh, And, you know, there's some interesting stuff on this card, even though I'm I'm not sure that this is going to be one that's going to move a ton of units over on pay-per-view. But but you've got some good fights here, I think. Number one pound-for-pound fighter in the world, Demetrius Johnson. going to defend his world championship against... (laughs) I see what you're uh, (laughs) doing. I see
0: what you're doing. (laughs) You
1: know, let's give the UFC credit. They actually did put the words flyweight title in the promos for UFC 174, as opposed to some of the previous efforts where... And put them on pay-per-view. Yeah, simply referred to as the world's championship. Well... I'm not sure that they had a chance or a choice, really, other than to start putting the flyway title on pay per view right now, since so many of the other uh, champions are out dealing with injuries. Uh, nonetheless, you've got a fairly interesting matchup here between Demetrius Johnson and Ali Bagayutinov. Uh, Bagayutinov is a guy who uh, has. Yeah, you
0: learn to pronounce a name right, and you just take any opportunity to do it, don't Mr. you, Mister
1: Bagayutinov? <laughs> He's uh, one of my favorite Bagayutinovs. <laughs> Uh, he's, you know, he's won 11 fights in a row. His last three in the UFC, uh, can't really argue with the results, but I wonder also if we're not getting into sort of a Ricardo Lamas type situation here where, uh, one of the UFC's da- dominant champions is, is coming into uh, a title offense against this time, a really tough guy that maybe not a lot of people have heard of.
0: Yeah, th- that is going to be kind of the problem at this point though, in the flyweight division in general, uh, I don't know if you saw the, the countdown show for this one, but Demetrius Johnson kind of mentions it that like, look, hey, at least it's a fresh fight. Yeah. Like I've already fought uh, you know John Dodson and uh, Joseph Benavidez and the division is still young enough that it hasn't really had the time to develop a, a full roster of challengers. So there's not that many guys that people do know. Uh, And this is going to be kind of the way that people find out about him is somebody works their way up to a title shot and then they have to find out about him before uh, the the title fight comes. So, I I mean, it's also part of the problem, I guess, is that you got Ali Bagatinov, another guy who, uh, another Dagestani fighter who doesn't speak a ton of English. So it's really just hard to get to know him. Like if you, if you watch the, the countdown thing, pretty much the entire thing is about like what he does workout wise, because it's really hard to kind of like penetrate in there and find out much about the dude's personality. Uh, he doesn't really make it easy on you there.
1: Yeah. Don't you feel though, like uh, these guys that have come over from Dagestan probably have some stories.
0: Like they don't I don't want to share them.
1: Yeah. I guess it seems that way, doesn't it? I mean, I don't want to uh, paint with a broad brush, but uh, a crew of MMA fighters, uh come over from dagestan and many of them now live in the albuquerque area i assume all in one apartment because i can't imagine any other outcome
0: judging by the sound of things there, there's a little bit of discord among some of the dagestani fighters at jackson's
1: right yeah they don't all they don't all like each other i understand but that just makes my sitcom idea all the more hilarious yeah. uh but you know it seems like these guys would would have some stories that would be promotable if you could uh I don't know. Crack, crack through the surface. I guess is what seems like maybe the issue.
0: And it does. Doesn't it also make you think, though, that the more they don't want to share those stories, the the better you think those stories must be? I it mean,
1: does seem that way, doesn't it? The
0: one the, the the closest I've come to to hearing some of them shared is is via Mike Winklejohn, who was saying and talking to uh, Adlon Amagov before one of his fights, and he was and Winkeljohn was kind of disconcerted by how calm he was before the fight and was worried that maybe that was uh, a result of nerves. And he said, uh, Adelon explained to him that he had lived for seven years in a tent with Russians shooting at them from helicopters. So, no, this didn't really rattle him very much.
1: See, that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. I know. I know
0: it's the kind of stuff you're talking about. But, uh, you know, they they're not really volunteering that information. The closest you'll come is seeing uh, Ali Bagutinov out there on like a a football field doing his conditioning by throwing rocks around. I don't know if you saw that, but that's kind of incredible. That's pretty awesome. And it's like he's. Just kind of throwing it around. Like, if you gave, like, a big rock to, like, a 12-year-old and were like, here, knock yourself out, man, have fun. And he's just kind of doing whatever. He'll just pick it up and, like, throw it like a shot put, and then pick it up and just throw it straight into the ground, leaving huge divots in this field, which I'm sure whoever uh, owns the field is not too happy about. Uh, you know, just kind of have a good time with a big-ass rock, man.
1: <laughs>
0: ah, well, that's easy to like.
1: Um, any chance that he unseats Demetrius Johnson here, though? I mean, I guess that—I guess— uh there's always a chance, especially in the, in the flyweight division where it feels like we're, uh, proceeding more on feel than it is necessarily what we know about all the guys. Uh, even though Demetrius Johnson obviously is a guy we've seen a lot, we kind of know what his game is all about and, and is, is clearly a really, really talented, uh, and young guy with, with a great future ahead of him. But, uh, I keep thinking to myself, if they keep booking these UFC champions against guys that maybe don't have the highest profile, eventually you're going to come out the other end with one of these guys pulling the upset and being the champion.
0: Yeah. But you know, then that's not too bad a thing. Then that guy has a higher profile and then you still got the champion hanging around. I mean, I guess that in such a way divisions can be built. Uh, I think obviously there's a chance any guy who hits as hard for the division as Bagutinov does. I mean, the puncher King, you know, he can go out there and, and, and hurt some people. Uh, I think the problem with Demetrius Johnson is getting him to, in front of you long enough to be able to hurt him. And that's the thing that the Jackson's camp people are saying about him. I mean, they've game planned for him before and fought him before with John Dodson and saying that the guy just sets such a high pace that he wears so many people out. And the challenge is not only, you know, being able to find him and track him down and, and hurt him, uh, but also not getting worn down by that pace over the course of five rounds. I feel
1: really proud of you for how long you waited to say Puncher King.
0: Really, thank yeah. you. Yeah. Showed
1: incredible restraint yeah. on your
0: part. Well, I don't like it that now everybody's transitioning and just calling him Puncher. Like that's what everybody's doing now. Is just saying Puncher. Puncher King is so much cooler. It seems
1: like if you were going to pick one of those two words, King would be the way to go. Not necessarily Puncher. <laughs>
0: well, why do we have to choose though? That's what I'm saying, man. Puncher I- King. You, Perfect.
1: You make a valid point. Uh, the other marquee attraction on this card, Ben, the co main event, Rory McDonald against Tyron Woodley, uh, officially your number two and number three welterweights in the UFC. Uh, we have, I think at one time or another, been told this was going to be a title eliminator, but now you've got, uh, Matt Brown also fighting, uh, Robbie Lawler, uh, pretty soon. Um, And and there's a chance that the winner of that one emerges as the the uh, the next challenger for Johnny Hendricks. Uh, And, you know, they've all probably been promised that they're the guy. Uh, Tyron Woodley has said if he wins this fight, he's going to sit out, man, Daniel Cormier style and wait for his title shot. Uh, What do you think? Good move, bad move from Tyron Woodley?
0: You know, I would say in a lot of situations, that's a move that I can get behind in the welterweight division right now. It seems like you don't want to be doing that. It seems like you go out there and win a fight. And, it's still, it's not clear that you're going to be the guy, you know, a lot depends on how you win, what goes on in other people's fights, uh, when they're ready to to book another title fight, you know, I don't know if you want to be predicting that far in the future in that division, especially. Uh, And, you know, that's a tough fight for both those dudes. It also seems like uh, maybe a fight that has the potential to be super fucking boring. What do you think? This one, yeah, it could depending on uh, could be awesome
1: uh, which version of the dudes show up, uh, you know, especially Rory McDonald, who uh, may have benefited in in hindsight uh, from a strength of schedule issue. Uh, you know, he he came into that fight against Robbie Lawler last November on a real roll. He'd won four or five fights in a row. Uh, you know, then we see kind of a different. Rory McDonald, a tentative Rory McDonald uh, in that fight. He ends up losing the split decision to Robbie Lawler, uh, which at the time seemed like maybe a disaster, but then Robbie Lawler goes out, has this fucking amazing fight against Johnny Hendricks, uh for the for the welterweight title and maybe just like a college football team who loses an early game and then has the team that beat them go on and have an amazing season, maybe Rory McDonald's stock goes up a little bit because of how good it seemed like Robbie Lawler is. Uh he put that loss behind him with a unanimous decision win over Damian Maya at UFC one hundred seventy and now has this uh Tyron Woodley fight though where I think uh we all are kind of waiting to see which a version of Rory McDonald shows up to try to con rekindle that uh that status he has as uh george st pierre's hand-picked successor prior to that robbie lawler loss
0: yeah i think that uh here's one where if he goes out there and he just does the usual thing that he's been doing in the last few fights where it's a lot of uh win by nullification basically and it's you know it's effective he's really good at it he can really shut down uh people's offenses but then when he shuts and shuts down their offense you're kind of waiting for okay here comes part b the part where you know he unleashes this offense of his own and it's not really there it's more like he's he's winning rounds and and stopping anybody else from doing anything and you can't question that he won the fight at the end but neither do you exactly want to sit down and watch it all over again so i mean i do think the way the welterweight division is right now where if you got Guys like that on one side and then guys like Matt Brown and Rob Dilar on the other. I don't know if this is the time, just like it's not maybe the time to be sitting out, it's also not the time to be kind of squeaking out decisions via nullification. Yeah,
1: good point, man. You got to you got all them
0: hitters out there. You got you gotta, them hitters. You to try to keep
1: up with those hitters. You know, there's one other thing we got to talk about on this fight card before we wrap up. What's that? The pit bull, baby. <laughs> oh, God. Andre Arlovsky returns to the UFC courtside. In Albuquerque this past weekend, I guess cage side, uh, just looking like a million bucks. Uh, they showed him on camera. Seemed like he found the goddamn Fountain of Youth or something. Just looking like a 19-year-old
0: Andre Arlovsky. Hey, he's always looked good getting off the bus. That has never been the issue with Andre Arlovsky. Uh, the issue has been what happens to him when he gets in there in that cage. And this is an interesting one because you've got a couple of guys who have suspect chins there, right? You've got Arlovsky and Brendan Schaub. Yeah. Yeah, I, I got to think that Schaub, though, it seems like he has realized that about himself and maybe doesn't really trust his ability to take a punch that much anymore. You got to figure he's going to want to put on Jarelofsky on his back, right? Would you go as far as to say
1: that this is a high concept fight? I would not go that far. In that I don't either. even know what that means. It doesn't <laughs> seem like the concept could be tremendously high. No, it's in, like a mid concept fight. In In any fight, I don't think the concept could be. Very high at all. Uh, you know what? We kind of made fun of the Andre Arlovsky signing, but... I'm kind of glad he's back. I'm I'm looking forward to watching what he's able to do against Brendan Schaub this weekend, and hopefully it doesn't end in a horrifying knockout.
0: You just want to go out there and pretend like it's 2005 all over again when you were you were young, bright eyed, Chad. Living my glory days. Anything was possible.
1: We're <laughs> probably gonna drink, watch this UFC with two 40s of malt liquor, duct taped to either
0: hand. Just drink a Sparks and get all amped up. But only because I'm gonna watch it at your house. <laughs> okay, good.
1: Uh, let's do just saying stuff, man, and then we will get out of here for this week. Ben, I don't know if you, like me, were sitting at home on Friday night switching back and forth between Bellator on Spike and RFA over on Access TV.
0: No, I was not. I was living a life.
1: Anyway, he's, man, he, see, you would give me so much shit if, that, if, I, if the roles were reversed right now. we get emails about it, but the Ben Folk sycophants are probably going to leave you alone. They're probably going to give you the benefit of the doubt. But if you had watched, Ben, you would have seen over on RFA, that Spencer Spencer Pratt cohort... Kevin Casey went out and knocked out some dude named I believe Andrew Sanchez so badly that referee Mike Beltran had to give him like a day one jujitsu lesson while he was still knocked out. And then even after the official outcome had been announced, this Sanchez dude wanders over and tries to start another fight with Kevin Casey while he's being interviewed his post fight interview with Pat Miletic and I'm just saying, I think we can all admit that everybody watching sort of secretly wanted another fight to break out. If for no other reason than we just wanted to see Pat Militich fucking regulate.
0: <laughs> Am I right? Uh, God, is there a worse way to be known than Spencer Pratt cohort?
1: Yeah, that's. I don't know. There, I'm sure that there are worse things you could be called. Okay,
0: fair enough. Well, Jed, this week, I'm just saying, uh, I don't know if you heard, but that Dana White was not at UFC Fight Night 42 in Albuquerque. Uh, Dave Scholler from the UFC had to run the, the post-fight press conference. And as he explained, Dana White couldn't be there because he was at a family function in Maine, I believe. Huh, wait, uh, out living a life? And so he couldn't be there out living a life I'm just saying, you still want to tell me that the UFC is not running too many events? You can't. You can't follow along and be there for all of them, even if you're a rich guy with your own private plane. Because eventually, if you have a family and you have other people in your life, something's going to come up on a Saturday night where you have to go do something or be somewhere or give your attention to something other than professional fighting. However, briefly, I'm just saying, even Dana White can't watch all the UFC events saying
1: just saying well that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast we'll be back next week to break down all the stuff that happens at UFC 174 but as for right now we are done we are through we are out you know this is going to be unpopular but I'm gonna say it anyway I feel like referee Mike Beltran's mustache is underrated that is going to be unpopular because it's so awesome I feel like it would be completely impossible to overrate that fucking mustache
0: I just want to know. Uh, you know, we see that mustache and we think, okay, awesome. Uh, what does he think when he has to wake up every fucking day and deal with it? i in the mirror, happy that it's.